Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Well, uh, we have some visitors here today. I just want to introduce myself. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, this is a uh, we call the last Sunday of the month Family Sunday, so you're going to see um, and maybe here, um, some more young ones in here. For those of you that have kids that kind of like first grade and below, we still have classes for them because we know sitting still for 20 minutes is a little challenging. But this is a value of ours. So just to kind of restate this for somebody that may be new, um, I was in youth ministry for a number of years. And what I continually saw is many of my students that graduated high school that grew up in the church never went to church. And what I mean is they would come into the building But then they would always be siphoned away to kind of age-appropriate, we call it, classes or events for them. And actually, society is built that way now, isn't it? Where most families interact with each other for maybe an hour or two in the evening and a little bit on the weekend. Um, And so what I saw was these, these youth that had never really attended the life of the church, been a part of the worship gathering of the church. They when they didn't have something specifically tailored to them, they just kind of checked out. So it's, it's a value of ours to create some intentional um, space and for our young ones to be a part of the gathered body. And so we do that uh, once a month. So um, there is room for a little bit of squirminess and a little bit of noise today. Um, there's some, uh, some, some activity um, pages in the back if you want to grab some for your kids as well. So... Um, we're, we've been in a, in a series in the book of Revelation called Letters to the Church, and um, Jill just, wrote, just read the second letter um, that we're going to look at today as a church, and this is the letter to a church in a place called Smyrna. Before we get into that letter, I wanted to ask you uh, a few questions. This is, a, this is actually a quiz, okay? It's a, it's a true or false quiz, so you have a 50-50 shot of being right. Um, I saw this last week, somebody put uh, on, I think it was on social media, I saw an uh, image of a Scantron. Does anybody know what a Scantron is? You remember that from your day? And it brought back all of these anxious memories of mine uh, when I was a kid. So I'm not a test person myself, I'm, I'm a terrible test taker. But just to kind of get us thinking a little bit about the early church, and that's the context that we're going to be reading in, in today, I wanted to ask a few questions. So these are true or false questions. The first question is, true or false? The early church met in homes. True? True. The answer is true. Now, we see the very beginning of the church in Acts. They actually met in the temple courts in Jerusalem. Um, So it's kind of a true and false. Um, But outside of Jerusalem, the early church met in homes. Now, if you are picturing kind of a 2,000-foot suburban rambler, that's not what the homes look like uh, in the Roman world. In fact, in the Roman world, and in the Jewish world uh, specifically, um, family homes are actually pretty big. In fact, as the family would grow, so would the home. They would literally add on rooms for married couples and for kids, and grandparents lived together. So a, a typical home in kind of the Roman Empire um, was, was pretty big and oftentimes had a, a, a sizable courtyard, sometimes in the middle, like an atrium, um, sometimes outside. And so when we say the early church met in homes, um, many of these homes could accommodate up to 50 people gathering together, which is pretty close to the normative-sized church in America today. Um, As 
as the church grew, um, sometimes the church would move to a wealthier person's home. We see this in like the, the book of Acts, a woman named Lydia um, was, was referenced as a, as a wealthy person. Some of those homes could accommodate 100 or 150 people in those outside atriums. So early church meant homes, true, but a little bit different than probably would imagine. Uh, second question is, the early church didn't study the Bible. What do you think, true or false? Uh, this is kind of a trick question. It's mixed. So first of all, we know the early church didn't have the Bible as we have it now. Um, they had the Old Testament. The, the Jewish believers had the Old Testament. But if you weren't a Jewish believer, you didn't even know that. And th- so what they were devoted themselves to was the apostles' teaching. We see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. Um, the apostles, the ones that were with Jesus, were conveying what Jesus had said. Now, they were also receiving scriptures. This letter that Jill just read was one of those pieces of scripture. But it wasn't until a couple of generations later that we had the Bible in what we call it now. So, again, kind of tricky question here, true and false. Um, The last one is, the early church gathered every Sunday. What do you think? False. So when did they gather? Actually, this is true. The early church gathered every Sunday. Also, you could put a little, a little true and false. Some of them also would have gathered on Saturday evening, kind of the end of the Sabbath. But Sunday wasn't called Sunday in, in scriptures. If you look in scriptures, what you see is two kind of indicators that they met on Sunday. One is they would say they met on the first day of the week, the first day of the week, which is we call Sunday. That many believers didn't use that word because it was associated with the Roman God, the God of the sun. Um, but Throughout Scripture, we see they met on the first day, or they would call it the Lord's Day. What is the Lord's Day? Well, it was the day that Jesus rose from the dead, which, again, was the first day of the week. So whenever you read Scripture next time and you see first day of the week or Sunday, take note of that. Again, they probably also met Saturday evening after Sabbath was over for those Jewish believers, but they clearly met regularly on the Lord's Day. Okay, there's just a little context for you. I'll go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation Chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the pews in front of you. If you don't know where Revelation is, it's the last book of the Bible. So you can just start at the, start at the end and look for the big two. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, we're going to read this one more time, even though Jill just did a fantastic job reading it for us. It says this, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So this letter was written to a specific church in a specific time. We know what the church is. The church is not a building. The church is the people of God. 
They've responded to the message of Jesus, and they, in, they gather together for the purposes of Jesus, to glorify him and to make him known, as Lavelle said earlier. So when we picture the church, we're not picturing a building, we're picturing a people. This particular church um, was just north of Ephesus. We read about Ephesus last week, a, a massive metropolis in the Roman world. Um, Smyrna is... Uh, really close to uh, a modern-day city in Turkey right now, today. Um, if, you, if you look at what was said to Smyrna as opposed to what was said to Ephesus, one of the things that sticks out to us is it, when Jesus addressed the church in Ephesus, there was both, both an affirmation and a challenge. There's some things that you guys have lost, namely your first love. With Smyrna, there is none of that. There's just an acknowledgement of, of what they're what they're dealing with, and, and encouragement to continue on. So Smyrna, again, is a, it's a, a modern, still a modern city today. Um, it's about twice as big as Renton. Um, in Smyrna, there were several temples to different gods, one being to a, a god that we probably have heard of before named Zeus. Uh, in the Roman Empire, there was a lot of people who also worshipped the emperor as god. In fact, we found coins that ascribe deity to certain emperors in the Roman Empire. And so Smyrna, in addition to having some temples to, to gods, Greek gods, Roman gods like Zeus, also had a temple to the emperor, who at that time is believed to be Domitian. There was a Jewish population in Smyrna, and we see from this writing that this Jewish population was also very hostile to these new Christians. So, what was the church facing. What was the church facing and dealing with in Smyrna? Well, we see clearly that there was some, some form of persecution, and as a result of that persecution, they were also dealing, the church, the, the members of the church, with poverty. Um, he, he says, I know your afflictions, this is Jesus speaking, and your poverty. So with this persecution, it's probably um, fair to draw an assumption that they were not a a favorable people in the city of Smyrna. Because the Christians wouldn't have worshipped in these temples, they wouldn't have bought many of the wares that you had to buy, like the little idols and trinkets and certain things to, to give at the temple. So that they weren't, uh, the, the local businesses probably didn't appreciate the Christians for not worshipping their gods. Um, they weren't indulging in some of the pagan practices in that city. And so the Christians probably stuck out pretty big time within that city. And as a result, they, if they owned businesses or they were trying to conduct um, and sell different wares, um, there's a good chance that they were rejected for that as well. So they're struggling to keep their businesses afloat in this, this very pagan city. And this is, a, this is a really common theme that we see in the church, in the ancient church, in that first century. Um, many of the followers of Jesus because now they were living differently, stuck out, and not in a positive way within the culture. Hebrews 10, uh, 32 through 35 kind of gives us a, a little description of what many Christians in that first century church had to deal with. It says this, Remember those early days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict, full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, at other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. 
You suffered along with those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It shall be richly rewarded. So this is just a a snapshot of what it looked like most likely to be a Christian in the Roman world in the early church. Similar to the previous letter, there is also a, a, a group of people that is called out in this letter that is troubling the church. It says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. That's basically saying they're like a, the church of Satan. This is Jesus' way of saying that these Jews, even though their, their ethnic identity is Jewish, their spiritual identity is not. What is a Jewish person? It's a, it's a people of God, the chosen people. We say that still today. But these particular Jews in Smyrna, in opposing what God is doing through the church, they are opposing God himself. They're dragging people to court. They're coming up with false accusations against them. They're joining the culture in the opposition to this Christian group. This is pretty, pretty similar to Jesus. We saw the same thing. Who, who took Jesus before Pilate? It was Jewish believers that were opposing the ways of God. A generation after this letter is written, the church in Smyrna is still there. It's still present, and it's actually matured. It's, it's held on despite this suffering. And there's several writings um, from and about one of the key leaders of the church in Smyrna at that time. His name was Polycarp. Polycarp um, was identified as kind of a regional leader of the churches there, specifically in Smyrna. And Polycarp would eventually die for his faith as a martyr for refusing to worship Caesar. So remember I mentioned that temple uh, that was of emperor worship. Some of Polycarp's last words that were recorded, he says this. He says, For 86 years I have served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? So he's being told, you need to renounce Jesus and you need to worship the emperor, and he could not do it. And so Polycarp died for his faith. So this letter that Jesus writes to the church in Smyrna is acknowledging their present hardships, but it's also letting them, or encouraging them to hold fast. Why? Because the hardships aren't over. Wouldn't it been interesting to receive this letter and in hopes that Jesus would say, and I'm going to come and everything's going to smooth out pretty soon. But he didn't say that. He said things might actually get worse. And so in light of this, Jesus acknowledges that even though they're suffering, even though they are materially poor, that they are spiritually rich. What does he say? He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. So let's pause here for a moment. And let's talk about what is it like to experience, um, we could say, discrimination. What is it like to experience discrimination or um, antagonism or persecution because of your faith? 
Those are kind of three different words for a, a similar thing, right? Discrimination is unjust or prejudicial treatment. In other words, you're talked about uh, in unfavorable ways or you're excluded or treated differently. What is, it, what is it like to face that because of your faith? What would it be like to face antagonism? In other words, people actively opposing you because you're a Christ follower. How about persecution? Persecution is kind of the ex- most extreme form. Some sort of hostility that usually results in physical harm and even death. You've probably heard me say this before, but the most persecuted people in the world today are Christians. And this isn't like a Christian survey that, that's saying these things. This is world... Um, The United Nations has put out reports on this. Other nations have put out reports on on religious freedom and persecution across the world. The United States puts out a report every year talking about this. And every year, the results are the same. Christians are the most persecuted group of people in the world. Now, the reasons are different in each country. I'll just share a few reasons. One is, and this is is from from various reports um, put out by different nations, but one of the, the main um, sources of persecution towards Christians is Islamic oppression. So in the, the country of Iraq in 2003, when Saddam Hussein was killed, um, Saddam Hussein actually ruled the nation kind of more in a secular fashion. He let religious groups kind of exist and in some ways kind of kept them in check under his own totalitarian rule. Not saying he's a good guy, but he allowed them to exist. In the country of Iraq, prior to 2003, there's an estimated 1.5 million Christians in that nation. Some of these Christians, like the Chaldean Christians in Iraq, they spoke Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus spoke. And they had been present in Iraq as believers for 2,000 years. Now, you can do the math. That was essentially since the very first century. It's believed that the Apostle Thomas actually traveled to Iraq to deliver the gospel to them. After 2003, when Saddam fell from power and the Islamic groups swept in, many of those Christians had to flee. A huge Christian population in the city of Mosul, um, which is actually pretty close to Nineveh, does that name sound familiar, where Jonah traveled many years ago, um, had to flee. And so now there's an estimated 250,000 Christians in Iraq. It's quite a decrease from 1.5 million. They've had to flee literally for their lives. The most persecuted um, Christians right now in the world are in the country of Nigeria, which interestingly enough, Nigeria is one of the most Christian African nations, but it also has a militant Islamic group called Boko Haram who are routinely rounding up Christians and massacring them. It's amazing. Many of us didn't even hear about this in the news, but on Christmas, this last Christmas, 150 Christians were killed as they went to gather to worship together. So, largest Christian population, but the most martyrs. Thousands of Christians have died. So, Islamic oppression is one of the reasons. The other, uh, we could kind of put it under a bigger umbrella, is authoritarianism, communism, and nationalism account for much of the persecution. We see with communism, countries like North Korea and China Uh, Why is Christianity a threat to communism? Because it says Jesus is Lord, not the state. 
not the ideology. And so uh, there are churches in those countries, uh, not so much North Korea, but in China, but they are controlled by the state. The pastors are told what to say, how to say it. There's no such thing as sharing your faith. No kids programs. None of that is allowed. You can meet briefly on Sunday, and that is it. I've spent a lot of time in China. I've sat in a front room with a Chinese pastor who was crippled for the rest of his life because of the beatings he took for being an underground house church pastor. So authoritarianism, communism. Um, in countries like Myanmar and India, there is a type of religious nationalism. Um, in in um, Myanmar, it's Buddhism. And in India, it's Hinduism. Um, this religious nationalism, basically, the ideology is that everybody in this nation should be, if you're in India, Hindu, if you're in Burma, Buddhist, and if you're not, you deserve to die. Again, I've sat in our country, in Spokane, I got to visit a, a Burmese church, all refugees that had to flee for their lives simply because they're Christian. So this is the reality of the, the world we still live in, and what is happening in Smyrna has been happening since Jesus' time. And it's something Jesus repeatedly told his followers to be prepared for. If you want to follow me, what does Jesus say? Take up your cross. It's going to be tough. So we might ask this question then. What did we sign up for? I thought life was supposed to get good and easy. I thought there was supposed to be this peace and this joy because all of my wildest dreams are coming through. Isn't God like a genie? Once I say yes to him, he'll just give me what I want. The Bible never promises that. The Bible promises actually that we'll have peace despite our circumstances, joy despite our suffering. How could that be? The good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is that your sins, your addictions, your brokenness, it costs something, something that you can't pay. The messes you've made need fixing, but you'll never be able to fix them. The lostness you feel, the despair that is in the world all around you needs a hero to make it right, but you are not that hero. And so God came. Jesus, God in the flesh, he paid the cost for our sins that we couldn't pay. And through him, he offers the fixing our hearts need. He is the finder of the lost and the hero to the broken. As Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the gospel that we believe. Now, just as there was then, there are still today systems and powers warring against the Jesus way. Jesus calls this out when he says the Jews are like the synagogue of Satan. The name Satan literally means the adversary or the accuser. And as we've already talked about, this looks different, this adversity in different countries around the world. Ultimately, the gospel of Jesus makes a claim of authority for salvation and for forgiveness and kingship that is at odds with the pride of humanity. The humanity that is trying to ignore God and to be their own ruler. And so the evil of Satan works through that pride 
and it's opposed to the ways of God. Maybe it's through false religions, nationalism, communist ideologies, or maybe it's just my own stubbornness that I can figure this out. It's opposed to the ways of Jesus. So we might kind of take a step back and go, okay, we just heard some examples, but what about in the United States? Would Jesus, if he were writing this letter to us, would he even include persecution? Would he even warn us about this, or would he say something else? Now, before we answer that, I think one thing we can all agree on is that to whatever degree we've experienced any hardship in America for our faith, it's nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters in the faith have experienced around the world. And I know in our, in our congregation, we have people from about a dozen different nations. And so if we were to sit down and share those stories, some of you probably have experienced some hardship in those countries that um, maybe even why you had to come here. So the, the degree of hardship is, is not even comparable, even if we have experienced some here. But how, how about your experience? Have you ever experienced discrimination, antagonism, or persecution because of your faith? I've heard little stories here and there over the years, and oftentimes there are a couple of things that come into play as it relates to being a Christian in America. One of the reasons that I think many Christians feel like they're experiencing some kind of antagonism for their faith is not because necessarily of their faith, but it's because they're leading, instead of with the gospel, they're leading with um, some sort of secondary issue. They're leading with a, maybe a political stance or some other thing that is not central to the faith. This is actually kind of a backward introduction to Christianity. Jesus never started with, you're only welcome to receive forgiveness of sins if you believe in young earth creationism. You're only welcome to receive this free gift of grace if you vote for the right political party. Unfortunately, I'm going to be honest, a lot of Christians today, they lead with those things and then they go, oh, I'm being persecuted for my faith. I'm going to be honest, many of them are just being persecuted because they're jerks, not because they're leading with the gospel. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And people need to know that gospel truth before they can be changed by it. And that alone is plenty offensive. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus alone can speak to your deepest needs, can forgive you, can bring about the justice your heart desires. Jesus alone. That's plenty offensive enough without having to attach these weird secondary issues to it. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather that the actual gospel be the turnoff and not a political meme that I post on social media. The other thing that's true in America is many Christians are living in a fear of antagonism or discrimination for their faith, but that fear isn't actually based on reality. Let me, let me explain. There are some statistics from a poll conducted by LifeWay Research recently, and it found that uh, half of Americans say that they are curious as to why some people are devoted to their faith. 
And the most curious of those people are younger adults, 18 to 34. So more than half of Americans would like to know, Derek, about your faith. They're curious. Why do you believe what you believe? Sometimes we believe 98% of people don't care, and if I bring it up, they're going to get mad at me. No, more than half actually do care. And amid this curiosity, most say that their Christian friends don't often bring up their religious beliefs. In fact, 6 in 10 Americans say many of their friends who claim to be Christian rarely talk about it. Sixty-five percent of those are open to talking with a friend about having a relationship with God. So this idea that, oh no, if I do it, what will happen is not really based on reality. It's based on fear. Does your neighbor, does your coworker know about your faith? Have you asked to pray with them? I have never once in my life had somebody turn down an opportunity to pray. Not once. Believers, non-believers, people of different faiths even. Have you shared the hope that you have in Jesus? Don't give in to the fear. There are opportunities all around you to tell people about the hope you have in Jesus. Now, I don't want to be naive here either. Don't be surprised if some people don't want to hear it. If some people don't like you because you are a Christian. But I'll tell you what, if you can peel back the layers of politics and kind of these caricatures of Christianity, or if you can even acknowledge there's been times when Christians have not represented Christ, if you can have those kind of honest conversations, people want to hear about you. They want to hear about your hope, your faith. We know that the gospel of Jesus was offensive from the very beginning. It was offensive in Smyrna, and it's offensive in the Pacific Northwest. But let's make sure it's the actual gospel that people are rejecting and not a secondary thing. So with that in mind, we know that Smyrna had to deal with these things. We know that many suffered and still today are suffering for their faith. But they are holding on to a hope, a hope that that is rooted in this statement from Jesus. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus suffered on our behalf, and there is no better evidence of our commitment to Jesus when we endure hardship for our faith. So let me end this with this last verse, and then we're going to take really a symbol of suffering together. This is a unifying thing. Just as the church gathered on the Lord's Day, the church has, for 2,000 years, taken of the bread and the cup to remember Jesus suffering for us. And so when we take this, we, in essence, participate in his suffering, but we also rejoice in his victory. We remember his resurrection. That's why the early church gathered on Sunday. We want every week to remember the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because he overcame death. And he's invited us into that as well. So this is what we'll take in just a moment. But let me end with 1 Peter chapter 2. This reminder of this suffering. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you 
leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.